Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 13 and go through verse 16. Again, that's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 13 through 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, you left it at home, you can use the Pew Bible. You can find it and turn and find our scripture today on page 1006 in your Pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. We want you to take the Bible home. We believe in its power. Um, I say that every Sunday, and, and y'all take my word for it, or you don't take my word for it. But now I have uh, data. I have actual data to show you the power of God's Word. Uh, the Center for Biblical Engagement, for Bible Engagement, has done a study over the course of a number of years studying 400,000 individuals. And this is the results they found when reading the Bible. So if you read the Bible, if you enter into God's Word one time a week, the results are negligible. There's virtually no difference in your life as if you, than when you didn't read the Bible. And, and so, uh, so coming to church just on Sunday and opening your Bible here and now doesn't make much of a difference really in your life. But, and, so, and so it is with two times a week. So if you just go to church on Sundays and a Bible study another day of the week, and those are the only two times you open your Bible, the effects on your life are negligible, virtually uh, impossible to see any change on your life. Now, at three times a week, the study revealed that there was now a blip on the radar. There were some changes, but nothing significant to really note. And then at four times a week, the data just blew off the chart. At four times a week of reading your Bible, um, here, here's what's happened. Within those 400,000 people studied, four times a week, feelings of loneliness decreased 30%. Right, Because now you're in God's word for at least four days a week, and you can hear throughout Scripture that God is with you. Right, We are not alone in this. Anger goes down 32%. Bitterness in relationships decreased 40% with those who read their Bible four times a week. 40% bitterness. Alcoholism. Alcoholism decreased by 57% amongst the 400,000 who read their Bible four times a week. Why would that be? Maybe it's because we have gone to alcohol or other substances in our lives because there's a hole or there's a dark space. There's a pain or there's a hole that we are trying to cover up, that we are trying to go and, and sink ourselves into so that we can't feel it anymore. And then we go and enter God's word four times a week, and we find that that hole does not mean we are unlovable. And we read in God's word daily how God cares for us and loves us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So alcoholism dropped 57% when reading the Bible four times a week. And now, if you're feeling spiritually stagnant, it decreased the feeling of being spiritually stagnant, kind of stuck and not really getting close to God, kind of not really sure where you are, by 60%. You want to get closer to God? You want to not feel spiritually stagnant? Read your Bible at least four times a week, and there's a 60% decrease in feeling stagnant. In viewing pornography, which is pervasive and something the church is far too quiet about that affects all sorts of people across age spectrums and, and deeply affects relationships. Viewing porn went down 61% with when people started reading their Bible four times a week. 
And those are all the decreases, the things that it took away from your life. Now, what does it add to? There's two giant numbers here. Sharing your faith for those that read their Bible four times a week increased by 228%. 228%, four times a week. Four times a week, discipling others increased by 230%. So you heard that we believe in the power of God's word. We have data to back this up. God's word is powerful. If you don't own a Bible, take that one from our pews today. You are not stealing from us. We want you to have this life-giving word in your hands. It makes a difference not only in your lives, but in the lives of others around you. Please, please, I encourage you to take it. And I encourage you to read it. Now, if you have a Bible and you're not reading it, maybe you don't like it. Maybe it's a hardbound book. Go buy a softbound, leatherbound one. If, you, if, you, if you're not entering the paper one, try the digital one on your smartphone. Almost everyone in here has a smartphone, and you can download the Bible app for free, and it has almost every translation available. Find a translation you like. Enter into it. Do I have a preference on translation? Yes, I do, but I've kind of studied the translations, and so that's where I land. Find a translation that you'll read, that you enjoy reading. If you, if you enjoy reading the King James, that's great. Read the King James. If the King James keeps you from reading it because it's the these and the thous and the thys, find a new translation. And here's the fun part, too, right? So on the Bible app, you don't like reading. I don't have time, Pastor. I've got to commute. I'm in my car. You listen to the radio, you listen to podcasts, you listen to books on tapes. You can plug in your Bible app and you can hit play and it will read the word of God to you. It has never been more accessible in your lives and it has never made a bigger difference in your lives than it does now. And so I encourage all of you to enter into that. That's not even the sermon today. That was just a quick note. Our scripture this morning, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Let us read that together. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not Receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Here ends the reading of God's word. If you would please join me in prayer. O holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. So I'm just going to say here, if you weren't here last week, last week we were in the previous part of Mark where it talks about divorce, and I can just say, what a transition, right? So, so we go from Jesus saying that you're committing adultery to now disciples turning children away. I mean, what a transition in, in the vastness of Jesus's ministry, yet here we are with those scriptures together. Uh, from divorce to children, Jesus enters into the public square and lifts up the gospel and how it changes lives. And so Jesus uses this moment of, of the disciples rebuking children 
to teach the disciples and to teach us something vitally important regarding the gospel. And so we, we notice here that the disciples are attempting to protect Jesus's time and his energy, right? So we're going to make that assumption. We're going to put good and, and genuine motives with the disciples. And we're going to do that with everyone in scripture and in our lives unless we are told otherwise, right? It's, it's looking for the best in people. And we're going to assume that the disciples are just trying to protect Jesus. We've seen it before. He's been crowded in by people and, he, and they've tried to act like secret service or, or like the bouncers at a concert where they're trying to give the band some room so they're not crushed in upon. And they're sitting there, there's parents coming with their kids, wanting Jesus to just touch them, to, to bless them so that their kids uh, would receive this blessing. And, and they're turning them away. They're rebuking them. They're saying, come on, guys, you think he has time for you? He doesn't have time for this. This is Jesus. He's a busy man. He's got things to do, places to go, a cross to hang on later, he tells us. I think their motives were genuine and good in trying to protect Jesus because in that time, children were seen as property. They weren't valuable other than they were heirs and descendants. They had no value within society. The children had no say-so. And so the disciples just couldn't comprehend how these children would be furthering Jesus' ministry. That rather it was just a nuisance and one more thing he had to do that prevented him from teaching or performing miracles. And so they're rebuking them, sending them away, and, and Jesus gets wind of this. He gets wind of what's going on, and he goes to stop it. And in stopping it, what he does is he affirms children as being important as being important and being loved, because in that time, children weren't seen as such. Children were rather seen as, as I said, they were seen as property, and, and a father could dispose of his children at any time he saw fit. And I mean the word dispose in the most disgusting of ways. They had that ability. And Jesus comes and affirms that children are important, that they belong, and that they are beloved by him. And the word the scripture uses is indignant. When Jesus found this out, he was indignant. This is the only place in the entire New Testament the word indignant is used. And it comes from two Greek words being put together that mean much grieved. And so here we learn a bit about Jesus' heart and about how he values kids, because when he heard, heard that children were being sent away, he was much grieved. He was indignant that he went and put a stop to his disciples. He rebuked them himself. And then he says, do not hinder them. It's a command from Jesus. Do not hinder them. They belong to the kingdom of God. So when we hear Jesus tell his disciples, who we believe had good intentions and good motives, we don't think they hated kids. We don't even think they had a strong dislike for children. When we hear him say, do not hinder them, we then must turn and ask ourselves that very question. Do we hinder children from coming to Jesus? How much of what we do as parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles and neighbors and community members, uh, 
hinders children from getting closer to God? Are we leading and teaching them the faith, or do we have, or are we leaving that up to the church to let the church handle it? Because I will tell you that the church, on average, has approximately 50 hours of contact time with children per year. 50 hours total in one year. That's all we will get as a church with your child. And that's on, and, and that's on average. There, there's instances of more and there's instances of less. Your child's being instructed somewhere, and most likely it's not here from the church. And so I can tell you this, that the number one responsibility of a Christian parent isn't to raise a good kid, who gets good grades so they can go to a good college so they can get a good job. That isn't our goal. That isn't our mission and purpose in life as parents, nor is it our mission for them to exceed in athletics and get that D1 scholarship that 1% of all kids who play sports get so that the 1% of those 1% that get the D1 scholarship can go and play professional sports, make millions of dollars, and I can retire in 20 years. Right? That's a, that's a false expectation we have for our kids. That's not our job to raise them into superstar athletes so that we can then live off the fruits of their labor because it was our labor of taking them to all those practices. You laugh, but you haven't been to the travel ball fields lately. I'm telling you the truth. We all have these grand, uh, visions of grandeur for our own children. And, and there's various times in in their lives when, when we realize that the original vision we have for our children isn't what's going to come to be, that we begin grieving the loss of that child instead of enjoying and being captivated by the very child God gave us. Because we were too fixed on worldly things and not fixed on leading them to Christ. For the gospel is always filled with grace and patience and kindness. No, so our number one priority as parents is to lead our children in the gospel of Jesus. That's our job. God gave us children so that we would be stewards of his creation, right? We're created by God. He knows every hair on our head. He formed us in our mother's womb. And so if he gave us children, he gave us those children so that we would be good stewards of his exceedingly great creation. So that what? So they can get a good job and a mortgage? No, so that they would know Christ. That's our mission. That's our purpose as parents. And now, that, that's personal questions for us. Do we hinder children? Now, there's another question for us as the church. Do we hinder children? Do we help them along? Are, are we really focused on children and reaching them? Or is most everything we do aimed at and made for adults? Which is it? It's kind of hard to say out loud, isn't it? Kind of hurts to say sometimes. There was a study done by Gallup a number of years ago, and it was uh, and it was a study done on Christians and, and when they came to faith in Christ. Nineteen out of twenty U.S. American Christians came to faith before the age of twenty-five. 19 out of 20 Christians came to faith before the age of 25. 
at between ages 25 and 35, it, it was one in 10,000. And the number kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's, it's, a, it's a rarity within American faith for adults to come to faith later in life. Not that they don't, not that God isn't still working, but it's not as often. And so we wonder, why is that? Why is that the case, that the older we get, the less likely we are to come to faith? Well, I think Jesus answers that for us. I think he answers it in verse 15 today when he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so what's Jesus talking about? Like a child, he uses this metaphor here for us. If he does not receive the kingdom of God like a child. And so uh, when we ask what he's talking about, let's see, is must he be talking about the innocence of a child? We must be innocent like a child then. Now, some of you haven't been around a child in a while. I'm here to report they are mischievous. There is a reason we call it the terrible twos. There is a reason we call it being a three-nager. They're incredibly self-focused, I mean, as they should be. The entire world revolves around them for a while. But they absolutely know the mischievous trouble they get into. You can see it on their face with that sly little smile and that look of attempted innocence. Wow, that can't be it. So maybe, like a child, maybe he's talking about childlike wonder. That, that could be it, right? Where, where children are able to wonder, and you have these conversations with children about faith, and they're able to explain great things and wonderful things, and you just go, wow, this child fully understands what this says in a way and in a picture that I never understood. But I don't believe that Jesus is talking about their ability to play make-believe is what allows us to receive the kingdom of God. No, I, I believe that what Jesus is getting at is their helpless dependence. How did these children get to Jesus in this crowd anyway? They didn't wander on their own. The scriptures tell us right here. And they were bringing children. Someone was bringing children. They were bringing them to them, the adults, the parents, the guardians, the aunts, the uncles, the neighbors, the community members, those who saw Jesus and knew something great was going on, was grabbing children to bring to him. They were utterly dependent on someone else to bring them to Jesus. They were utterly dependent upon another. All children across the world, no matter your race, creed, ethnicity, nationality, are helplessly dependent until they grow. And so it is also then for those who are born again into the kingdom of God. Unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, unless we are under, utterly dependent on Jesus, it's not our good deeds plus what Jesus did 
plus our uh, attendance at church that gets us into heaven. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone. He did it all. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we should have died and bled on the cross, covering our sins so we'd be reconciled to the Father three days later, being resurrected and then ascending to the right hand of God where he sits today interceding for us. That means he's praying on your behalf, reminding God of what he did and whose we are. We don't have anything we can add to this that would make us more worthy. And that's the struggle, right? That's the struggle. Because there's a point in time as we grow, and it's usually in adolescence. It's usually the time hormones start kicking in, and, and maybe we're getting taller and bigger. We've been in school long enough. We have friends around us that now we know better than mom and dad. Not only do we know better, we know more than they do. We can do math in different ways. Right? We bring home homework and we ask for help, and the parents look at us and go, uh huh. Not how we did it back in my day. It's, it's the truth. It, it happens in my own house. So it is so. It's the trap that's laid before us in our walk with Christ. The trap laid by the devil himself that our, our sin nature and pride willingly jumps into. We hear it all around our culture. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It means that we can do things on our own. We know what's best. And so, and so while we know the things of God and we know the gospel and we know what Jesus did, yet our life looks like we are not dependent upon him at all. We make the decisions of important things without once consulting God. Our prayer life looks, looks weak and empty because we struggle with things and yet think, well, I can, I can handle this myself. And then even if we are in prayer with God and we, and we think, well, I'm not going to share this with others. Heaven forbid they take up their time praying for me. I don't want to burden others. I've got this on my own. How many of you have been there before? Thinking you have it all by yourself. And it is exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting trying to handle everything this world has all of as if we were made to do this by ourselves. What hubris that is. What pride. What, what, how conceited can we be to think that, you know, I know better than God. So much so, I make important life decisions without once consulting God. This is why we see such a big difference. 19 out of 20 came to faith before the age of 25. And the number gets harder and harder as you get to adults because we begin to live a little in this world. And the world tells us that we're all alone and we have no one else to rely on and we have to do it by ourselves. And so we're living in this world by ourselves and thinking that we can also get to God by ourselves. And Jesus says, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you will not enter. You know, in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that he is the great high priest, that he is the great shepherd, that he is the one who leads us to the Father. In fact, he says it in his own words, Jesus does, in the Gospel of John, when he says, none, not one, not a single person comes to the Father except through me. 
and not only through him, but by him and with him leading us. On our best day, we will not find the gate to the kingdom of God on our own. And if we do, there's no way we're able to open that sucker. Jesus does that. Jesus is the one who gathers us as the lost sheep in this world and gathers us unto himself. And as our shepherd, he brings us home to our Father. This is what Jesus does. You say, but pastor, I've got to come as a helpless child? How humiliating. Yes, how humbling. How humbling indeed. But we must come ready to be entirely dependent upon Christ. For breath, for life, for eternity. And Jesus says, no other way for all other ways lead to your destruction come with me and you will find peace and rest and comfort and joy and hope and grace and life life abundantly amen As we come now and prepare to come to the Lord's table, to to partake in this meal with him here at First Christian Church of the Beaches, it's something we do every Sunday. We believe.